Fly Pod. Welcome, welcome, welcome to episode 48 of the Fly Route Podcast. I am your host, Anthony, aka Tony Playboy, aka Antonio's Brown Note, aka Michael Scissors Hands, aka Scissors Gate, and aka Tebow's Blocking Form. And I have an exciting show for you all today. But before we get into any any of that, I want to make sure that you like, follow, and subscribe wherever you are viewing this IG, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Audia. It does not even matter. So let's get into the show for today. I'm going to get into the tee off where we talk about a 1998 story of Michael Irving, Cowboys legend, stabbing a teammate with a pair of scissors. We are going to get into the recent NFL roster cuts, what to expect, and who you should expect to get picked back up. I'm going to get into the top five NFL defenses and my reaction to the recent KD Draymond Green Bleacher Report interview. And last but always, always not least, I am going to give a big, big ballers bouquet to Malcolm Jenkins of the New Orleans Saints. Welcome to the tea off. Oh, spill that tea, sis. This is how I like to start the show off. I like to spill some tea on our favorite athletes and some of the crazy situations they get themselves into. Look, first and foremost, this one was submitted by a follower on Twitter. You can follow the pod on at the fly route pod and shout out to at NFL pro picks for the recommendation. This is a fantastic story. So we are talking about Michael Irving drafted in 1988 Dallas Cowboys legend spent his entire career there and retired in 2000. Look, this is about Irving's second to last season with the Cowboys 1998. The Cowboys were at training camp at Midwestern State University. This is in Wichita Falls, Texas not too far off from Dallas. And apparently it was a tradition for the Cowboys to provide an in-house barber while everybody was at training camp. Now, this story starts when Irving walks into the room with the barber and everybody in it, and he wants his haircut, but he don't want to wait. And he sees a teammate, Everett McIver, who is a new acquisition for the Cowboys at this time and was a starting right guard on the team but was also in the NFL for five years at this time of the story. And while McIver is getting his haircut, Irving walks up to him and tries to get him out of his seat mid haircut. I cannot make that up. And it doesn't take too long for things to get out of hand. Irving begins yelling seniority, seniority, seniority over and over again. That doesn't make McIver move. Then he starts yelling punk, get the fuck up out my chair and everybody that sees this is like for no reason Mike Irving just walks into this room and tries to get this guy out of the chair mid haircut because apparently he is just way too good to wait a couple of minutes to get his haircut and another offensive lineman looks at McIver and says you're no fucking rookie he can't tell you what to do and McIver was clearly feeling the support he was kind of gassed off of this one and decides to take Irving on for this issue and like i'm getting like the mark phillips you know hood olympics instigating role here and i wonder if that teammate ever really thinks about this and 
retrospect and was like, uh, maybe I should have stayed out of this one. But McIver was like, hell yeah, you aren't getting me out my chair. He gets up and shoves Irving. Irving shoves him back. They get into a physical altercation in the middle of the barber shop. They start trading blows. And the thing you got to understand about this is McIver is an offensive lineman. So he's like six, some 345. Irving is at a clear disadvantage. So McIver is giving him the work, punching him in the face and whatnot. And what happens here? Irving decides to grab a pair of scissors in the shop and stab McIver in his neck literally missing his carotid artery by inches, according to reports. And this becomes a very gruesome scene. Muscaiver starts grabbing at his neck. Blood is gushing out everywhere. And Perlman actually wrote a book on this situation, and he describes it as the motion was neither smooth nor slick, but jagged, like a saw cutting felt. The tip of the scissors ripped into McIver's skin just about at his collarbone. All right, that's pretty serious stuff. The whole scene was crazy, according to a current uh, former member of the team, Kevin Smith, who played corner. And, yo, Michael Irving literally almost killed this guy, inches away from killing this guy. It's insane. The Cowboys, of course, you know what America's favorite team does. They tried to cover it up. This is particularly important because Michael Irving in this situation was actually on probation for another quite infamous story involving the motel room a lot of cocaine and some strippers and he had basically just been fresh off of court been put on probation and was told that he was going to go to jail for a long ass time if anybody had to see him in there one more time so jerry jones does jerry jones things tries to sort this out and actually pays off mciver to stay silent about this situation and unfortunately the dallas morning news gets a hold of this story and the payout runs with the story and Jerry Jones flips out, threatens to remove all of his ads from the Dallas Morning News to try to force them into taking down the story. Of course, they do not do that. And then everybody starts running with it. You know how the media does. If one person touches the story, now everybody does. And the Cowboys describe this as horseplay and an internal matter that wasn't going to get any, any further than that. And then you have to ask yourself, why are we reaching back to this now? Besides the fact that great recommendation, shout out at NFL Pro Picks again. But recently this year, Irving was on a podcast called 10 Questions with Kyle Brandt, and he tells his side of the story. And when I heard his side of the story, look, I look, no, you can only hear this for yourself. People talk about this. There was an event in 1998 having to do with scissors and a teammate. What happened? You know, okay, we had we had a tradition. Um, we had a tradition in training camp. You know, just like they have in every training camp, veterans go, and then rookies go, and and, and then uh, young, young younger guys go. Now remember, McIver at this time is a five year veteran in the NFL. Veterans, and then the guy that behind the veterans, and then the guys that are behind those guys, and then the rookies go last. We had that okay. event. So after practice, and everybody's just, we've been practicing hard and everybody's kind of riled up. We come in doing what we always do. You know, the veterans jump in. And, and, and a guy there that was new to the team, I just wanted to spread his wings and, and kind of show, you know, I understand, that he's a man. You hear this nigga? 
He wants to spread his wings and show he's a man because he ain't get up in the middle of his fucking haircut for you. How narcissistic can you be to reshape this story in this way? Even though the rules are what they were. And, and then we got into a little a little spat. Now, this is a big 340 pound guy. Big 340 pound guy. Officer Lyman. You know, uh-huh. I, I, the guy, people do the research. They want to find out what happened. Uh, his name. I won't put it out for him. I hope all the best for him. But but afterwards, and then, he, you know, we got into it. He just came at me. And I'm talking about this big guy had me down. He punched me and punched me out. Whoa. Kind of caught me off guard. But then we got into it. And, and yeah, and, and I actually grabbed a pair of scissors. Hey, big fellow, stop. Back up now. Stop. Don't do that again. Don't come up. There are literally no reports of this situation that says Michael Irving literally at any point said, hey, big fella, stop. In fact, everybody just says he grabbed the scissors and stabbed the dude in the neck with no warning. Everybody was shocked. So clearly this motherfucker lying. And he did come up and he moved and came up and the scissors cut him. So this nigga stabbed himself in the neck with the scissors, according to Michael Irving. He moved up and stabbed himself. You hear that? You believe that? All right, let's keep going. For everybody that's listening on YouTube, you can actually see the video and see his face while he lies to you. This is a cut up um, in, in that room and everybody went crazy. Now, let me tell you something. I had just gotten out of out of court where the judge told me. Uh, uh, the rest of this is him going into the story about how he was on probation and that guy actually saved his ass because he would have spent like a decade in jail if this had gotten out or Makaira had ever decided to press charges. But that was your tee off. Ooh, 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 spread that tea, sis. Spread that tea, sis. Y'all, it's Tony Playboy. All right, all right. We are going to get into the recent roster cuts in the NFL. Training camp is winding down. The preseason only has, like, by the time you hear this, probably two more games left. And look, key dates. So the first date passed on Tuesday, August 17th, where teams had to get their total roster down to 85. On the 24th, it'll be down to 80. On the 31st, it'll be down to 53. So Right now, there hasn't been a ton of roster cuts, but as things go on, it's going to get a lot more competitive, a lot better players are going to be cut that you're going to see making it in other places in the league. But the people that get cut early have a particular advantage because they can try to latch on somewhere a lot earlier in the process than others. So what I want to do is talk about some of the key roster cuts and give you my feel or take on what happened here. The first one is the most interesting one for people. Tim Tebow for the Jacksonville Jaguars. If you're a frequent listener and you've heard me talk about this a couple of times, we all know Tim Tebow was never going to play tight end in the NFL. We all know uh, he probably couldn't. And it was ridiculous for him to ever get that opportunity in the first place. I'm not knocking him for taking it because if you get it, you should take it 100%. If you get it, you should take it. But... It is kind of ironic overall. Tim Tebow's out. Urban Meyer has, I don't know, done more debacles than not in his very short tenure. So I'm going to move down to the Eagles. The Eagles actually cut running back Kerryon Johnson. The Lions fans that listen will know this guy. He played for the Lions basically every year uh, so far up until now. And I think this guy's going to get picked up somewhere. Definitely. He's a great compliment back. 
Man has averaged 4.3 yards and attempt over his career in the league. He's a decent receiver, has good hands, and he has had some issues being healthy, especially earlier in his career, which I understand, especially with the depth that the Lions had uh, running back while they let him go. But he was healthy enough to play all 16 games last season. He's only 24. I strongly believe someone is going to take a flyer on him. And there's a couple other running backs on this list that I want to talk about. The second one is Lamar Miller cut by the Washington football team. And this one was a little surprising to me because I had actually heard a lot of good things about him in camp this year. His last healthy season was in 2018. So that was two seasons ago. But in that season, he was a pro bowler averaging 4.6 yards a carry, 70 yards a game. His good hands can catch. I honestly want to see him get one more chance. But the way that he's been kind of bouncing around these last couple of years and not really being healthy, I feel like he might kind of be on the way out. The last running back I want to talk about is Ido Smith. Ido Smith, former Falcon, almost identical to Kerryon Johnson in the like. He's only 25, averages about 4.3 yards a carry. He's never been a lead back, but has always been a good compliment that can add depth to some squads, can fill some roles as a bruiser guy. Here's what I'm going to say. There's a couple of teams that are very light at running back now, even with these expanded rosters. And I think they're going to probably take a take a flyer on a guy here or there, especially these that got cut early so they can kind of get them into the system a little bit early and compare them to the other guys they have on the roster. The teams that I want you to be on the lookout for for picking up these like running back talents are the Jets, the Dolphins, and the Bengals. Those are the three that I feel like we're definitely going to try to pick up a guy based off their current situation and the way people have been trending in their camps. Now, another guy I want to talk to you all about is cornerback Prince Akumura. Now, I'm shocked because the Saints needed more depth at corner and still cut him. And they still need more depth at corner, which means that he had to look pretty bad in camp to get cut this early. He was a 19th overall pick in 2011. He has never been truly consistent, but has been good in flashes here and there. He didn't play in 2020, so maybe it was some rust and he just didn't catch up in camp as fast as a lot of the other people. But it's going to be interesting to see what the Saints do here because now they're banking on like a third round corner. I think his name is like Adebo and a slot corner and Brian Poole. So I'm ooh, I'm interested to see what happens. We know Marshawn Lattimore has some legal issues. He might not start the season, might get suspended at some point during the season. I'm curious to see, but this is not trending well for Akamura. The next person I want to talk about is Josh Rosen. And Josh Rosen gets cut by the 49ers. And is this Josh Rosen's last stop in the NFL? I don't think he's ever gotten a huge, huge chance besides his time at the Dolphins. But it looks like he can't stay on a roster. And people aren't a fan of him, his attitude, his experience in the building. And I think when you're a guy that doesn't get a lot of minutes, doesn't start, isn't a large part of the team, the most important thing that keeps you on a roster is kind of like your people skills, what you bring to the team, what you bring in practice. And it seems like Josh Rosen isn't able to stay on these teams because that is a place that he significantly lacks it. Stay tuned in. Because as these other cut dates come around, 
I'm going to give you all more updates on these players that get cut, where I think they might actually end up being signed elsewhere, and the guys that I think just maybe will end up on a practice squad and not being able to play this year. What's up, playboy? All right, all right. We are going to finish off our top 10 NFL defenses. Last week, if we didn't hear, I gave you all six through 10. So you can go back, check that out real quick before you get into this one. But this week, we are talking top five, top five, top five. So to start the top five at number five, I have the Pittsburgh Steelers. Last year, they were number three in takeaways, yards allowed, and points allowed, which means this defense is overall strong, right? What keeps them at five for me is they lost two really, really good defensive starters in Bud Dupree to the Titans and Mike Hilton to the Bengals. I feel like their defense is going to take a pretty large hit because of this, but they're still at top five because we know Mike Tomlin emphasizes the defensive side of the ball, and they still have a lot, a lot of talent on this team. Pittsburgh is loaded. They have TJ Watt, who honestly was robbed probably of defensive player of the year, in my opinion. He had 15 sacks last year and an interception. They have Cameron Hayward. They have Stefan Tuitt, who massively underrated, in my opinion. Dude had 11 sacks, two forced fumbles. Of course, they have Devin Bush, Joe Hayden, Minka Fitzpatrick. Minka Fitzpatrick is a monster. He had four interceptions and a touchdown last year. I expect him to get even better with another year under this system and Mike Tomlin figuring out more ways to scheme his strengths into his defense. And they have people like Terrell Edmund and Johnson Lane, who were also on the team last year, will have more continuity under them. And it's just hard to count out uh, this Pittsburgh Steelers defense because it's really hard to count out any Pittsburgh Steelers defense. No team in the NFL had a higher pressure rate last year than the Pittsburgh Steelers. And they've had one of the best pressure rates every season of the last two, almost every season of the last two decades. They added Melvin Ingram in the offseason from the Chargers, who was pretty good, like undeniably pretty good. Has some issues with health, but I'm hoping that that is not going to be a continued issue for them. But with all of this, I think this is a team that you should be on the lookout for. I think top five, top six is a floor for this defense. We always know. I will always, always say this about Mike Tomlin and all of his teams they coach, their overall records, and especially their defense. This is a high floor, high ceiling team. Now, let's move on to number four. Now, number four, I have the Baltimore Ravens. The Baltimore Ravens are really interesting to me. So last year, they were in, I want to say second in points allowed and seventh in yards allowed. Uh, and last year, they were a really big bend, do not break style defense, which is very effective. They were number one in the league in opponent points per game and number two in the league in third down conversion, meaning that you do not score on this defense. And most importantly, they get teams off of the field they were top 10 in points allowed for like five straight seasons now the reason why they're not higher than four for me is that they lost again high quality defensive starters matthew judon made his way over to the patriots yannick ngakwe gone G Ward, gone 
But all the stats above that I've given you means that even if they might take a dip, right, they will still be a significantly good defense. Because whether or not they shed good talent, what is great about this Ravens team is, A, they know how to draft defensive talent really, really well and spent one of their first-round picks on defense. Two, is that they know how to get good free agents. And this team it has a very good next-man-up mentality. Like when Earl Thomas had his situations, plural, right? And they still were able to have a strong secondary, even though they let him go very late into the offseason. Now, they're planning to fill the hole left by Judon by Jason Owe, that first-round pick I was just telling you about. They're also banking on a healthier Calais Campbell this season because, like, in 2017 and 2018, this guy was a monster, respectively. He had, like, 14 and a half and 10 and a half sacks in those years. So if he's healthy and on the field, he is a difference maker. As well as believing that Patrick Queen in his sophomore season is going to take a big step forward. They baptized him by fire and he showed that he could handle the NFL game. He had 100 tackles, three sacks, and an interception last season. And the huge thing for me is, as I told you, Ravens will pick up those free agents and those free agents frequently excel in their system. They got Justin Houston over from the Colts. He had eight sacks and a forced fumble last last year. He had 11 sacks just two years ago. I think he has plenty, plenty, plenty left in the tank, and that is evidenced by him playing all 16 games the last two seasons. Now, in the secondary, there is no question here. They have elite-level talent. The first is Marcus Peters. He had four forced fumbles, a sack, and four interceptions last season. Marlon Humphreys on the other side of him. He's a playmaker. He had eight forced fumbles himself two and a half sacks in an interception. This is a Ravens team that will turn you over. And these teams that can get turnovers, get takeaways, and also put points on the board are the teams that excel and make it to the top five in this list. So now we're going to get into the top three. And now in the top three, we got to talk about the Rams. Now the Rams are good. I got them top three. And the reason why I got them top three is because they have some of the best defensive talent when it comes to their number ones on in the league. The reason why they're not any higher than that is because they don't have a lot of depth. Now, they had the league's best defense last year. Number one in points allowed, number one in yards allowed, number one allowed in opponent touchdowns, like per game, not total. But unlike the Bucks, the Rams were not able to bring back everybody that they got last year. They lost a lot of talent. They lost Brian Staley their defensive coordinator, and look, they also lost Wade Phillips prior to getting Brandon Staley, and they kept it on track. So I'm not saying that their defense is going to be terrible because Staley is gone, but hitting it out of the park three times in a row on a defensive coordinator would be impressive to say the least. He went on to be the head coach of the Chargers because he's that good. They also got safety John Johnson the third out of there. Troy Hill out of there. He went to the Browns. Michael Brocker traded to the Lions, Morgan Fox signed with the Panthers. Like, they lost a lot of high-quality defensive players. Now, with all that said, look, they got Aaron Donald, who is probably the best defensive player and just overall best player in the NFL. They got Jalen Ramsey, one of the best lockdown corners in the league. So it's just hard to count them out. 
They still have Leonard Floyd, who they got from the Bears. He had 10 and a half sacks last season. This defense will be good. It's just a question of how hard will all of these losses hit them and how much will it cap their potential. But regardless, they're still top three in the league. We're going to move on to top two. And my number two is someone that I think a lot of people will have number one, but it's the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. They returned all 22 starters from last season, but they were sixth in yards last season, eighth in points and fifth in DVOA, which means that a lot of people that have them as being the league's best defense, you're not crazy. I have them at number two, right? But maybe you were overrating that playoff run a little bit. Their defense was monstrous. Their defense ate people alive, especially their front seven. But at the same time, they face a lot of depleted offensive lines, especially against the Packers and definitely the Chiefs. They still like take took care of business. They took care of business, and you can only play the players in front of you. That out the way, Devin White, monster year, had 140 tackles, nine sacks. They spent a first-round pick on edge rusher Joe Tyron. In this first three seasons, Vita Vea, huge monster. He started a lot of games, had 73 tackles, hit the quarterback 19 times, had seven and a half sacks, three pass breakups. I think this is a guy that last year he was hurt a lot, but came in at the end of things and for the playoff run and definitely gave a boost to their defense. Uh, Sue, we all know what Nick Gombin Sue is. Like, this dude is a monster. He's getting up there in age, but he does not seem to be waning in talent. Man, this guy had 44 tackles, six sacks, a forced fumble, two passes defended, 50 quarterback pressures, according to Pro Football Focus. So he is still not at the top of his game, but at the top of the game. Their pass rush is always going to be elite. Jason Pierre-Paul and Shaq Barrett. JPP is the guy who doesn't need 10 digits to make the offense feel it. And he had nine and a half sacks, four forced fumbles, and two interceptions last year. You cannot sleep on that type of production. Shaq Barrett added another nine sacks and two forced fumbles. Whether or not this secondary can match the production up front is going to be the key X factor for this defense this season. Now we know a good pass rush will always, always, always make your secondary look better because the quarterback has less time to throw. I'm curious to see if they can replicate the playoff success that they had again during the regular season this year. But one thing we know is that this team has a lot of familiarity with each other. They're locked in and they're looking for a repeat season. Now, my number one, my number one, y'all already know what it is. I'm really high on this team very frequently, but it is the Washington football team. Look, they were number four in points allowed last year, number two in yards allowed last year, and second in red zone defense. That is a key stat for me, which means even when you get to the red zone, People are not scoring touchdowns and are having to settle for field goals, which is big. This might be the best defensive front in the league depth-wise, depth-wise. Last year, they were fourth in sack percentage and fifth in sack per game. This team has four former first-rounders on their defensive front with talented depth behind those first-round picks. Now, what we got to talk about is obviously Chase Young, obviously future defensive player of the year at some point in time. Defensive rookie of the year, had 40 total pressures, four forced fumbles, seven and a half sacks in his rookie year. If you are not expecting a massive jump from Chase Young in his sophomore season after 
not having a training cap, not having any preseason, you are asleep and not paying attention. Also, he has Montez Sweat next to him. 47 total pressures, nine sacks, two forced fumbles, an interception, as well as Jonathan Allen, who pro football focus credited with a 17.1% pass rush win rate, which is actually higher than it sounds. I know that number doesn't sound very high. Now, the thing that puts this team ahead of the Bucks for me with that pass rush is they have a secondary that I am more confident in. They got William Jackson III to replace Ronald Darby from last season at cornerback. I think that's going to be a large upgrade. Jackson allowed just 52% of the passes thrown his way to be completed last season. Team will also get back their star safety, Landon Collins, from injury this year, which is going to be big for them, as well as they got Kendall Fuller from the Bears. I think Kendall Fuller is a Great, great quarterback. He hits hard. He's really physical. He has a nose for the ball. He had four interceptions last year. He is great, great, great at defending in space and staying on a guy. I think just overall, this team's depth on defense front to back is what puts them at number one for me. And it's hard to count out the Washington football team. And this defense is why I have them winning the NFC East for the second straight year. a playboy affair all right look we are going to get into a recent interview draymond green interviewed kevin durant for his new show called chips like chips on your shoulder uh with bleacher report and overall i actually really like this episode it was a great episode draymond was a very strong interviewer he has a good rapport with a lot of players but also has a very good rapport with kevin durant that i think shined during this interview he was able to ask a lot of questions and get way more direct answers than other people have gotten because a lot of the questions that he asked have been asked to Kevin Durant a million, million times. Draymond is also, to me, clearly building to be the next media mogul in the NBA. I'm talking like Shaq, Chuck-style media mogul. Like, props to guys like J.J. Reddick, Duncan Robinson, who are really doing their thing in the media sphere. But Draymond Green seems to be aiming at a different level. Like, you've seen him on Inside the NBA, on TNT. He's starting to show grouped up with Bleacher Report, which shows you that he has some Warner Media support behind him. And I expect this to be great moving forward. Now, there are a couple pieces of this interview that I actually want to highlight. I mean, give you all some clips. YouTube listeners will get both audio and video. And the, the first thing that I want to talk about the most is the thing that everybody, everybody was talking about. Why did KD leave the Warriors? And is it Draymond's fault? Now, this was super, super illuminating to me because it is not what you would think. So I'm going to give you all the clip real quick. For my, for my own personal um, sanity, I've been getting my ass kicked ever since you left. So just for my own personal sanity, how much did our argument against the Clippers drive you to ultimately lead the Warriors. It wasn't the argument. It was the the way that everybody, Steve Kerr, act like it didn't happen. Bob Myers and tried to just discipline you and think that that would put the mask over everything. I really felt like that was such a big situation for us as a group. The first time we went through something like that, 
we had to get that shit all out. I remember watching the last dance, and when Scotty didn't go into the game, the whole team in the locker room said, Scotty, that was fucked up that you did that. We needed that. We just needed to throw all of that shit out on the table and say, yo, Dre, okay, like, that was fucked up that we even had to go through that. Let's just wipe our hands with that and go go finish the task. I don't think we did that. We tried to dance around it. I just didn't like how all of that, just the vibe between all of that, it just made shit weird to me. And I'd rather us be who we say we are, family first. Communication is key. Like, I, we didn't show that. And I, that's what rubbed me the wrong way more than anything. So there's something that's particularly unique to me. It's like, damn, they aired out the coaches in front office. They aired out... They had Steve Kerr, they aired out Bob Myers, and like, yikes. Because everybody blamed Draymond. Mm, Draymond took a lot of the brunt for that, but it, it's interesting because a lot of people think that they get a locker room, but I don't think they really do. Like, teammates are going to fight. Teammates are going to say some wild shit. Teammates are going to get into it. But most of the time, that doesn't always mean that it's bad. In fact, sometimes clearing the air helps. I'm going to keep going. Hazel was sitting in the car for an hour and 45 minutes. They pulled me in that room at Signature for an hour and 45 minutes, and they tried to tell me, you need to apologize. And I told them, I'll talk to Kay, but y'all aren't going to tell me what I need to say. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they went on for an hour and 45 minutes saying a bunch of bullshit. And ultimately, they realized, all right, we're not getting through to him. We're going to try again in the morning. And so we met the next morning, and they said, all right, you slept on it. You ready to apologize? (laughs) And I told them right then and there, I said, y'all about to fuck this up. I said, the only person that can make this right is me and Kay. And there's nothing that y'all can do, and y'all are going to fuck this up. And in my opinion... They fucked it up. I think so, too. And they told me right then and there, like, we're going to suspend you for this game. I laughed in their face, literally laughed in their face. Yo, okay. So let's break this down real quick. Now, first off, I love the fact that Draymond is like, I'm not going to apologize and pushed hard on that. The thing that's the most interesting part about that is Katie and Draymond as boys, they know each other. Katie know Draymond not sorry for what he said when he said it. And you know, he kind of meant that shit when he said it. Did he go too far? Probably. But that's that's neither here nor there. So if you come up with some bullshit apology to someone that you know, they ain't going to buy that shit. That's not going to fix that shit. And it was really, they were very on point. They were like, they fucked that shit up. They agreed that they fucked that shit up. And it was kind of surprising to me that Steve Kerr tried to deal with this way. It's not as surprising to me as Bob Myers tried to deal with this what this way he's not a, like uh in the locker room guy all that type of stuff but steve kerr played the game he was in those locker rooms he was around people like mj who went at people hard we all saw the last dance and it's weird that you got that logic out of the steve kerr because guys when shit's bubbling when they're going at it like at the most part they really have to hash that shit out or it's gonna stay bubbling under and generally, shit gets hashed out after an explosion between people, especially when it's been bubbling under the surface for a while, like the whole, is Katie going to stay, is Katie going to leave style thing. So that was always big to me when looking at this. Now, 
The second clip I want to talk about in this interview, which is actually just hilarious to me, is about Katie's burners. Obviously, uh, we were teammates when you, when you got caught with the burner account. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I love uh, about the burner account is everything that you said on the burner account, you just started to say on Kevin Durant's account. Yeah. A lot of people don't like it, as you know, mm. most people voice. Uh, they don't like how you respond to some fans or how you respond to this, how you are always tweeting. What do you make of people's reaction to you responding to fans? And if you think something, you send it. Yeah. I just think people are still upset that I went to the Warriors. And a lot of people who are Cavs fans, who enjoy watching the Cavs beat y'all before, um, which is a lot of people. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize that until I got there. <laughs> a lot of people enjoy seeing y'all lose in 2016. And a lot of those people were upset that we were so good. Mm -hmm. And they're still upset because you do the same shit on Twitter. Mm -hmm. Damian Lillard does the same shit on mm -hmm. Twitter. CJ McCollum does the same shit on Twitter. We all do the same shit on Twitter. But for me, it's a problem. I mean, I chalk it up to just me being so good at what I do and playing with a team that was so great. Now, look, y'all, I'm not going to lie. I thought this was funny. Now, first off, the burner account was hilarious to me. But the most important part of this is that I love the fact that KD kept that same energy when he hopped off the burner. That is even better. Like, I am on the side of how do you not love KD's interaction with his fans or just with NBA Twitter in general? Like, KD's in the spaces, KD's responding to people. Like, this is only good for the game, good for fans. And a lot of people, aren't really the same. Now, I will say he is wrong about tying his burner and people focusing to it to Golden State. The reason why your Twitter presence has such high scrutiny to it is because you got caught on your burner. And people didn't care about you getting caught on your burner because you played for Golden State. You acting a fool. Now, I'm going to give you a story that proves why Katie is just kind of, woe is me, doing a little bit of victimhood here. Do y'all remember Sixers executive Brian Colangelo? He was the former president of basketball operations and the general manager for the Philadelphia 76ers who got caught with a flea. I'm talking about like five plus burners account where he talked about the Sixers, criticized players like Nerlens Noel, Joel Embiid, Markel Fultz, etc. Disclosed sensitive team information. Like all of that. And he got caught with the burner. There were like a million articles, Ringer articles, Sport Illustrator articles, Bleacher Report articles. He had to resign and actually step down because he got caught with his burner accounts. If you are famous, period, there is a higher level of scrutiny to you. If you get caught with your burner, people will never leave your Twitter presence alone. Now, that being said, Katie ain't the same as other people are on Twitter. But he does get higher scrutiny because of who he is and how good he is at the game. But I don't think if I don't think the entire thesis or conversation around Katie's Twitter presence would be the same as it is today if the whole burner situation never happened. Now, the last clip I want to talk about was actually very, very interesting to me. And it's actually Katie talking about kids. Do you ever worry that? The longer you wait, your kid won't understand who Kevin Durant is. I'm glad he won't understand. Because I don't that? want him to have to feel like 
he's pressured in this bubble to do what I did, you know? And as long as I'm playing, like, this bubble is always going to be about making it to the NBA. So if you see a little KD out here, nothing but you expect him to be a basketball player. So, like, I don't know if my kid is even going to be that tall or fall into the game like I fell into it. Who knows? So I'd rather just me tell him, you know, over time what I did. I don't want any pressure for anybody that's coming into my world to do what I like to do or explore things on their own. Hi, how tall is Lana Rhodes? No, I'm just playing. Now, look, now I actually really like this argument by Kevin Durant here, and I think he is really 100% right. Like, it's hard to not see it from this way. First off, I think he probably saw things like, you know, MJ's kid, but particularly because it's like, right happening now lebron james kid Bronio. like think about how much pressure spotlight and criticism Bronny comes under because his dad is lebron james and he wants to pick up a basketball like i could fully understand why he would never want that for his kid he just wants his kid to grow up being a kid but like the microscope has been on Bronny since day one like Bronny likes his friend's mom's instagram pic just because like, hey, who cares? It's a like on Instagram. And there's like a million articles that he's trending on Twitter because people are like, is he fucking Larsa Pippen? Like, I can truly 100% understand why Katie don't want nothing to do with that for his kid. But also, how tall is Lana Rhodes? No, nah, I'm just playing with y'all. But for, for real talk, I thought this interview was amazing. I thought like the insight that we got on some really, really key issues for like Draymond, Katie, the Warriors, et cetera was huge. I can't wait to hear the next episode of Chips, whoever Draymond has on next. Like, I think he's going to be fantastic. Y'all, it's Tony Playboy. All right, all right. Welcome to the final segment of the show, the heart of the show, Baller's Bouquet. Too often in the media, people only want to focus on the negative and salacious things athletes do and never want to give them their credit where credit is due. Here, I like to make a change. And this week's Ballers Bouquet goes out to Malcolm Jenkins for his foundation, the Malcolm Jenkins Foundation, and their efforts to beat the racial wealth gap in America. Now, the best way to explain this issue was actually with Malcolm's words. Now, According to the Philadelphia Inquirer, Malcolm says it's projected that by 2053, African-Americans will on average have a negative net worth with Hispanics being right behind them. How do we begin to chip away at that? The earlier you can get kids focused on saving money and investing and understanding how to make money, the better off that you are. Thus, with his foundation, he is teaching children how to build wealth. That is why they opened a thousand savings accounts for students in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Ohio, and Louisiana. The first deposit in the savings account was $40. Now, this accounts are run by Goalsetter, which is an app that is owned by a black family. Basically do banking, financial literacy. They do have things like quizzes, kid-friendly educational tools, basically trying to teach the youth how to build wealth early on in their lives to give them the strong habits, skills, and education that can let them succeed later on in life. Now, the most important thing about these accounts is that the students will not be able to withdraw the funds until they're 18. So basically, whatever that $40 is, plus another $10 added on 
by goal setter will accrue interest until they turn 18 and they can do what they want with it. But also these students are allowed to put money in the account as much as they want, right? Which allows them to save and invest their money through the goal setter app and basically try to meet saving goals for earning wealth. And Malcolm Jenkins says, I was always taught that if you work hard and then that you save your money, that creates financial freedom and financial stability. And that is not how it works. That is not how you gain financial freedom. That comes through investing and making good decisions. He is trying to teach young students, young children to make those good decisions, to get into investing early. Now, you know what we do here on Fly Route Pod. But wait, there is more. Malcolm Jenkins Foundation also awarded a group of graduating high school seniors with what they call the rewards program, reinforcing education with activities, recreation and developmental supports. Twelve students got two thousand dollar scholarships since 2012. The foundation has actually partnered with the College Track New Orleans and did things to increase graduation rates in New Orleans for students, their college eligibility, their ability to enroll and complete. Over time, they've given out over $175,000 in scholarships through this program to a lot of different students. Now, this is, of course, admirable in and of itself. But wait, you know there's going to be more. Now, look, he has a Young Dragons Summer STEAM program, which is a six-week summer day camp that is developed in partnership with Drexel University. Now, this initially started in 2016, right? And was a two-week program. It later on expanded to a six-week program, although recently, especially this year and last year, has had to be an online-only program that is about four weeks long. But regardless, it is offered to fifth to eighth graders in the Western Philadelphia Promise Zone, offered to them at no cost, where they are able to learn STEAM learning. And what STEAM learning is, it's a modification of STEM learning to be more inclusive of different styles of education. So STEAM learning is science, technology, engineering, art slash athletics, and mathematics, right? The summer camp basically allows them to build skills and get education that they might not be able to get in their respective areas. The Promise Zone of Philadelphia is actually a very... um term of art location that includes a lot of inner, inner city areas, et cetera. And I think that what you have seen here is that on all levels, from being very young to just about to be an adult and going to college, Malcolm Jenkins has put the kids first and you know that the kids are our future. And that is why Malcolm Jenkins gets this week's Ballers Bouquet. Now that is it for episode 48 of the Fly Route Podcast. As always, I appreciate every single one of my listeners here. I can see y'all popping up and growing each and every single week, and I appreciate y'all. No matter what platform you are, our YouTube viewers, our listeners on Spotify, Apple Music, Audia, people that are just watching the clips on Twitter, you, uh, Facebook, Instagram, etc. I appreciate every single one of you. Any suggestions you have, like the TR suggestion that we got this week, I would love to hear. You can always contact us at the Fly Route Pod on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, or the Fly Route Pod at gmail.com. I want to know what you 
want to hear about. The, 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 the Fly Route Pod. The Fly Route Pod. The Fly Route Pod.